we've created this pariah, this group of monsters that is not worthy of redemption and even religious institutions that are based on like religious teachings all about redemption and sinning will not accept people with sex offenses into their communities. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today we're going to be talking about sex offense registration with Professor Emily Horowitz. And I'm going to let Professor Horowitz introduce herself in a minute because I think the conversation flowed uh, very well from then. But broadly speaking, Professor Horowitz is the author of Protecting Our Children, How Sex Offender Laws Are Failing Us, and we're going to discuss her work. I'm a professor of sociology and criminal justice. Um, I run a program for formerly incarcerated college students. Um, It's a degree granting program where they're full-time college students after they finish um, prison. But we don't have any people convicted of sex offenses in the program. Mm. And why is that out of your Um, Partially out of my fear. I just started the program about four years ago. And when we first started, the administration wanted no people with violent offenses. They only wanted like nonviolent drug offenders. So that was my first battle and I said no. Um, And luckily they were disorganized and so I just started with anybody who had any offense. Um, But definitely I think we'd have to have this program become more institutionalized before people on the registry. And as we'll talk about today, people on the registry are subject to many, many Restrictions, And so even being on a college campus is very complicated. Um, There's students who might be just under 18. Students bring children to campus. There's a pool where they have uh, swimming lessons for children. So there's a lot of um, collateral consequences that those with regular convictions don't um, have. So how did you come to this work? Okay, so I was working on my dissertation. Um, I have a PhD in sociology from Yale University, which doesn't have a criminology department. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably should have gone somewhere that had a criminology department, but when I was entering graduate school, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. So I have a PhD in sociology, but my dissertation was on um, domestic violence policies and domestic violence courts. And I was very horrified as an undergraduate and, and as a graduate student by domestic violence and the pervasiveness of it. And so I wanted to study how courts could be kind of a force for good and prosecute men who are convicted of domestic violence. Um, and as my part of my field work, I observed a domestic violence court in Brooklyn, a felony domestic violence court. And I was shocked at, one, I'd always heard in my feminist theory classes that domestic violence crosses all race, class um, bounds, and, and it affects everyone equally, but uh, after spending like you know my first three days in that court, I was, and it was uh, the felony domestic violence court for the entire borough of Brooklyn, which is a very diverse borough. It was all men of color, unemployed men, and poor men, and um, it was really striking, and it looked like every other court that you see in the United States. And it was really apparent to me that domestic violence courts were just enhancing penalties uh, for the same population that's already uh, uh, harmed by our criminal justice system. And the women in the court didn't appear to be really happy about any of this. Half of the time they were begging the judge to 
um, not prosecute the man, not lock him up without bail uh, because he was their sole provider. Um, it was just a complete mess. And um, I realized that enhancing penalties uh, is a really bad policy. So I wrote about the problems and uh, uh, kind of bad outcomes of criminal, of domestic violence courts. And then it opened my eyes to how things like hate crime law and other laws that are well-intentioned to solve social problems are really, really bad. And that's partly how I came to the registry. I also, I work with an organization called the National Center for Reason and Justice, which I found through my friend Debbie Nathan, who's an amazing journalist, and is the journalist who kind of exposed the daycare panic in the 80s. She wrote mm. the first articles about how it was a hysteria and it was a problem of false allegations. So she introduced me to the National Center of Reason and Justice, uh, where I'm a board member there now. And I met people who had been wrongfully convicted of crimes against children, um, and they hadn't been exonerated yet, and I saw the registry, registry restrictions firsthand. And I was completely horrified because these were people who had served 15, 20 years in prison. They'd finished probation and parole, and they had residency restrictions, their neighbors were notified, and their picture was up on a public website. So they couldn't work, um, They, many of them were homeless, and then I started looking more carefully at the registry and writing about that about 10 years ago. Okay, so then can we talk a little bit about just very high level, like what the what registries actually are, what they look like? So who is on the sex offender registry? Okay, so we've had uh, sex offense registries. I say sex offense, not sex offender, because sex offender kind of really dehumanizes people. So I always say, and, and I wrote a book called How Sex Offender Laws Are Failing Us, which I, you know, I would rename it. That was in 2015. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to use that kind of language when you speak and write, for sure, but it's really important. So um, there's almost a million people right now on public sex offense registries. Um, the, we've had Sex of public sex offense registries in all 50 states since 1996. Massachusetts was actually the last state to implement public registries. Um, so since 1996, every state has had a registry. Um, every year, the number of people on the registry go up, goes up. Um, and so when I speak of the registry, there are people who are incarcerated who are on the registry, but the registry um, is primarily for people after they've served uh, time in jail and prison, probation and parole. Uh, the idea behind the registry is that now your neighbors can know who is on who who has a conviction for a sex offense. Uh, the registries were motivated um, by a few high-profile murders of children, um, one or two of whom were murdered by people who had prior sex offense convictions. So politicians really seized on this. These laws weren't motivated by criminologists or policy analysts or people who said we have this statistically significant problem of people with sex offense convictions harming children. It was a political and emotional response to a few really horrible cases, primarily of white children being murdered. And we know their names, Megan Kinka, Jacob Wetterling, Aton Pates. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because at the same time that these laws were being pushed in the early 90s, and they were a bipartisan effort, both Democrats and Republicans loved these laws, pushed for these laws, it's very dangerous to, for it's very politically dangerous to oppose laws that people perceive uh, to be helping children. 
But it's very interesting because in the late 1980s, there was a rash of child murders in Atlanta of young African-American boys, and none of us know any of their names. I don't know any of their names. Um, but we all know the names of these few white children who were murdered. We even know their faces. Everybody can recognize Megan Kanka. So it was um, very politically and emotionally motivated. So that's raising a bunch of, of things that I want to talk about. But before we get there, just to sort of just lay some very basic framework. So um, what offenses do people have to be convicted of to have to register? So it differs by state, but any sexual offense involving a child, 100%, um, you're on the registry. Um, but almost every sexual offense involving an adult is also on the registry. And um, some states, they have levels, level one, level two, and level three. And if you're a level one, for instance, in New York, level ones are not on the registry. In most states, everybody's on the registry. Um, in Florida, you're on the registry even after you die. Um, in Florida, if you visit Florida, if you have a business and you have to visit Florida for a business trip for more than three days, you have to, you're put on their registry forever. So people on the registry don't like to go to Florida. Um, um, so there's nearly a million people um, on the registry. So in, that's 50,000 more than 2016. Every year it goes up by a few percentage points. Um, widespread public sex offense registries uh, emerged in 1996. And it's very interesting because um, child sex offenses have been declining for decades. They started declining overall in 1990. There's no evidence at all that child sex offense rates are impacted by the registry. So even though there's people on the registry who uh, harm adults, the motivation, the rhetoric is all about protecting children. And uh, I'm gonna talk for a minute about why I really oppose registries and why they should be abolished. Um, some people might argue, well, only like the really bad people should be on registries, but we don't need registries at all, and I will tell you why we don't need registries at all. Um, number one, people uh, who are convicted of sex offenses have really low recidivism rates, very, very low rates, lower than any other type of offense except for murder, I believe, and that's because if you're convicted of murder, you tend to be in prison for the rest of your life. Um, the rates of recidivism range from about 3% uh, uh, to 4%, all the studies show this. Department of Justice studies show that rates of reoffense for people uh, who've been convicted of sex offenses are very, very low. Uh, in addition, about 95% of sex offenses are committed by first-time offenders. So the premise of the registry is completely flawed. Uh, it's based on this idea that those who are convicted of sex offenses are destined to reoffend. Um, that their rates of recidivism are frightening and high, which is language that the Supreme Court has used, that these laws are justifiable because sex offense rates are frightening and high. This is completely false. Uh, Elman and Elman wrote an uh, article in 2015 trying to find out where this phrase frightening and high came from that the Supreme Court has cited, and they found it came, it was a quote from a treatment provider being quoted in a Psychology Today article who operated a program for people who are convicted of sex offenses. And he wasn't a scholar, he wasn't a researcher, he just said, oh, you know, our programs are needed because recidivism rates are frightening and high. And then the Supreme Court grabbed onto that language. Um, in addition to the public registry, there are residency restrictions, there's notification screams, schemes, there's 
really a sex offense legal regime in the United States that's completely counter to redemption, rehabilitation, and to safety, because we know all the research in criminology and sociology uh, shows that the best way to reduce recidivism and keep people safe is to help people have stable housing, help people have <clears throat> I'm sorry, help people have stable housing, help people find employment, and uh, uh, be reintegrated into the community. There was an incident in Connecticut just last week. Uh, a synagogue found out that somebody very active in their synagogue was on the registry, and they kicked him out. And as somebody who's, I've spent a lot of time interviewing people on the registry, even faith-based institutions will say, you know what, people with sex offenses can't be here. Even if the people say, I won't be around children, I'll only come to the services. We've created this pariah, this group of monsters that is not worthy of redemption. And even religious institutions that are based on like religious teachings all about redemption and sinning will not accept people with sex offenses into their communities. Um, finally, the most important uh, reason why the registry is really, really flawed is that it, it was designed to protect children from stranger danger, and this is really a non-existent problem. Over 90% of children are sexually abused by people they know, by family members. Um, rates of child sex abuse, those who study child sex abuse find that they, they decline because of social and economic factors, not because of the registry. So if we really want to protect children, the registry is not the way to do it, and we don't need one. Um, and I think relying on the data, there's so much data that shows registries don't work, that recidivism rates don't decline, that residency restrictions don't protect children, um, that notification just harms the ability of people to get jobs. People still say, well, I, I debated this legal scholar, a legal scholar who clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor very knowledgeable, and we had a debate. She was in favor of the registry, and I was opposed to it. It was a public debate, and basically she resorted to, well, if it protects one child. So relying on data and evidence is problematic because even though all the research shows there hasn't been one peer-reviewed study published since 1996 <clears throat> that shows the registry makes us safer, um, those who believe in it have this sort of fantasy that one child is worth it. And so if we rely on evidence, there might be one person on the registry who harms a child, but there's nearly a million people on the registry, and that doesn't include their children, their partners, their parents. The whole family is affected. There's so many cases of children um, whose face, um, who are ostracized at school when the kids find out their parents are on the registry. There's many reg registrants who can't go to their children's school to attend events. It's complete nonsense. Um, it's completely based on false assumptions. You were just talking about the effects on people's families and communities. And I was wondering if you could talk about if there's any disparate impact on poor communities or communities of, of color um, you know, based on who's on the registry, who ends up in the criminal system, and what that, uh, what those impacts are. Right. So that's a really good question because there is this stereotype of somebody on the sex offense registry who's an older white male preying on children in the park. That's not the reality. Um, African Americans and Latinos are overrepresented on sex offense registries, just like they're overrepresented in all areas of the criminal justice system. There's a number of minors on the registry, about 
between a quarter and a third of sex offenses involving children are committed by other children, are committed by minors themselves. So terms like, you know, that characterize um, people on the registry as, as predators preying on children are very, very dangerous because that's not the reality. There's statutory cases, Romeo and Juliet cases. One thing you'll see um, is people, you know, the, the example of people who that people who oppose the registry often use is there's people who pee in public on the registry. So there are those cases, but I think what's really important to abolishing the registry and getting rid of these laws is it doesn't matter what the person did. They served their time. We're only talking about people who spent, we have a whole rash of consequences for people who serve time, for people who uh, are convicted of crimes. So these are people who served their time. They were on probation, they were on parole, and now we allow them to rebuild their lives. So I think the, the sort of key operative data point there is that if recidivism rates are very low, um, then having having a system that prevents people from reintegrating in society becomes even more problematic. Right, Can more counterproductive. Just, right, more counterproductive. Exactly. So, what are the what are the actual ways in which the registry, um, you know, inhibits inhibits that process of of quote unquote rehabilitation or just reintegration when people come back? Okay, so there's two main ways. Number one, every state has some form of registry of residency restriction. Residency restrictions restrict where you can live, so that restricts housing. So almost every single one of the people on the registry that I've met or interviewed or talked to or heard speak, they have many, many challenges in terms of housing. Housing is the number one way that people have stability. In Florida, there's a huge problem of homelessness because in Miami, there's nowhere people on the registry can live. There's many cities, I believe in Los Angeles, there's nowhere that's, that fits the residency restriction rules. So it's very, very hard to have housing. Number two, many states actually put the employer's address on the registry. So obviously employers don't want to be seen publicly as employing somebody on the registry. Yeah. So many people on the registry have to find people to hire them through their own networks who are willing to work off the books. But that's a huge barrier to reintegration, not to mention community notification. There's many, many acts of vigilante violence against people on the registry, but then there's acts that don't even make the press where people are just harassed on a daily basis. Eggs are thrown at their houses. Kids go by their houses and yell things at them. That's a huge, last night at this panel here in Boston, many of the registrants stood up and talked about just the day-to-day -day harassment that they faced, how neighbors recoil when they see them. So that's another way that you cannot reintegrate, you can't rebuild your life if everybody knows that you committed a sex offense and that's how they define you. What would you say to people that, that essentially think of that kind of harassment or just sort of the difficulty of navigating the world, that see that as just more punishment? Like they're okay with it, um, not because it's hindering people's quote-unquote rehabilitation, but they just sort of see it as more punishment and just another, like, and they know that those things are going to happen and they're comfortable with it. Right. Well, the Supreme Court, I believe, has upheld the registry on the grounds that it's not more punishment. They said it's not more punishment. It's just like a, an awareness scheme. It's just a way to let people know. It, 
it's not more jail time. It's not more probation or parole. It's just kind of to make people safer and make people feel better. There was an incident in Rhode Island that really speaks to your question. Somebody who wasn't on the registry because his crime predated the registry um, sexually harmed a child, and he was released from prison, and he returned to his home in Providence. The mayor or some public officials leaked his address. He's not on the registry, so his, reg his address wouldn't have been on the internet. They leaked his address at some kind of community meeting. And now there's nightly protest outside his home, um, raucous, crazed protest. And the mayor sent the police there, and it's not even clear if the police are protecting the person inside the house or the protesters. Yeah. And clearly, um, this is a violation of this man's uh, uh, civil rights. And actually, in Providence, you, can, you, you should look. There's an amazing essay by the Providence ACLU director defending this man's right to peace and challenging the mayor's actions and saying this is not okay. And in fact, in Providence, they have laws that you can't picket outside public officials' homes. And yet they're defending this, the, the protesters there and just saying this harassment is okay. He did something so bad, he doesn't deserve to sleep in peace. They have a light flashing outside his house and everybody's okay with it. Um, where do you think that that like collective energy comes from? I mean, I think it's motivated by this idea that somebody, and even people who are prison, prison abolitionists, they oppose mass incarceration, the registry is really orphaned. They'll say, I think, you know, we shouldn't have prisons, rehabilitation, redemption for everyone, except for people who committed sex offenses. And they'll often make the argument, well, they ruined somebody's life. Their life should be ruined. What they did is so bad. And they wouldn't say that about murderers, because I guess the person is like dead and they didn't ruin their yeah. life or something. But um, hmm. in fact, in, in prisons, you're treated better if you killed a child than if you touched a child. And it is, we, some would argue there's a really good book called The War on Sex, um, and it's about how we can't talk about sex and how we've elevated sexual wrongdoing to this level where it's just all about hysteria and panic. I think the Kavanaugh hearings also showed that we really just don't know how to talk about sex and sexual wrongdoing. And it's, it's, there's, there's a cultural divide here. Also, it's, it's, it's really bipartisan. Um, and you know, I'd argue as a sociologist, it sort of started with feminist anti-porn um, organizing. It's very, very complicated. But it is one, one area that all Americans unite on is hatred for people convicted of sex offenses for very different reasons. It's interesting because some libertarian organizations have actually been very good about this issue because they oppose all government interference and they mm -hmm. um, believe that once you serve your time, there shouldn't be public registries. The government shouldn't, it's, it's just more government power. It's more laws, more rules, more regulation, which they oppose. So it's very interesting that um, that, that group of supporters has been somewhat good on this issue. But people, I mean, there's almost a million people on the registry, and so most people that get involved in advocacy meet one of those people, and then they're horrified by their realities, and then they start to get active. Everybody active on this issue tends to be somebody who met somebody, you know, except for criminologists and sociologists and lawyers. <laughs> lawyers, though, the lawyers that um, get involved in this had clients, and they're like, what the is going on? We just had uh, an event at the New York City Bar Association, and all the lawyers that were there were like, I had no idea until I had a client that 
was affected by these laws. So it's lawyers, activists, advocates, criminologists, and family members. And it is, as I mentioned to you before this podcast, it's a strange group because they can't do a lot of advocacy because even gathering is problematic when you're on the registry. Venues don't want to host an event for a group of formerly of people who have sex offense convictions. Yeah, it's um, it seems to me like there's a there's like a double barrier. There's the initial sort of raising awareness of the the dysfunction and the sort of um, loss of many civil civil liberties, et cetera. And then even for people who are like aware of the subject, it seems to me like there's a second barrier of like okay. How do we how do we compel people to like to activate you know to and then to do something about it? I think like a lot of even attorneys that I know, it's like yeah, I know this is a problem, but there's not this sense of um, or do you sense that there isn't the same sense of galvanism around this subject that, that right as because because of fear and panic and yeah. there's a lot of really good people who write about sex panic and moral panic mm-hmm. and this issue is so radioactive that it's really hard to get involved in it. Even for me, my friends and family will say, can you please work on something else? Like, mm-hmm. it's enough. You wrote your book. Like, because they even face people who are like, what does she work on? And I always, um, I have four children, and I'm definitely, when I speak to other parents casually, I don't, I just say, oh, I work on, you know, mass incarceration or something. I don't say I work on you know, reforming sex offense laws until I really get to know people. One thing I would say to people, though, is that, like, for example, here in Massachusetts, there's over 320 regulations facing those who have form, have felony convictions after they get up probation and parole. So people who have sex offenses, they all have felony convictions. They're already subject to hundreds of post-conviction regulations. If they reoffend, there's a whole host of consequences. We don't need more. This is just piling on. Mm-hmm. And then on top of those 320, there's the public registration, the community notification, the residency restrictions, and additional laws. Uh, as I also mentioned to you, I run a program for formerly incarcerated college students. We don't have any students in our program who have sex offense convictions. And one thing I see is that they have access to a lot of services in New York City. They have have access to drug and alcohol treatment programs, job training programs, housing programs, and all of these programs, they'll help anybody who did anything except people on the registry. And I think that really speaks to the barriers that they face. Even organizations that work with formerly incarcerated men and women have that caveat most of the time. So I feel like I'm starting to understand sort of what the, or we've talked about what the, like, the social motivation is behind just for whatever reason, people not being able to wrap their head around or not wanting to touch the issue of sex offenses. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what the mismatch is between people's perception of people on the registry? I mean, I know you talked about demographically, but like as a, as a human being, people's perception of folks on the registry versus you know who they are as individuals and i don't know if that's you know an individual story or you know people who come to the events like the one last night and talk about what their actual experiences are but it just seems like there's a mismatch i guess i would say that if you care about civil liberties and human rights you have to accept that there are people who have done terrible things they've done 
whatever your worst nightmare is. And many of our worst nightmares involve children and sex and unwanted sexual contact. Um, at the same time, like with any crime, um, many people who are on the registry are young. They were struggling with drugs and alcohol. They hadn't, many hadn't figured out that they were um, LGBTQ. Um, many came from poverty, dysfunctionality. Um, they're not that much different than anybody else who winds up in prison or who does something really terrible. Were they also the um, victims or survivors of sexual abuse? Many times they were the victims or survivors of sexual abuse. Um, many times they, they, they came from other forms of trauma or disadvantage themselves, and yet we don't allow them that humanity. Um, I think it's important. There are a few really outrageous cases, the Romeo and Juliet cases, right, where people are um, uh, the one partner's over the age of consent and one is under, and it's not consensual solely because of the age difference. Mm -hmm. um, there are there's juveniles who are on the registry. Often um, they're very, very young and very confused, and it's a form of sexual experimentation. There are internet offenders who are people who commit internet crimes, non-contact sexual offenses, um, and there's no evidence. Most research shows that people who uh, look at illegal images of children, there's some studies, there's a great psychologist, a Canada, Canadian psychologist, Michael Cito, who studies. Um, there's, there's not really a lot of evidence. Child pornography laws were passed because partly because people said, well, they, we're going to protect a child because this will lead to child sexual abuse. But there's not a lot of evidence. It does seem like that's a class of offense that doesn't necessarily lead to a contact offense. So hmm. um, while it should be punished, there's some states that give triple-digit sentences for looking at images yeah. of children. Um, and uh, it's very, very complicated. Um, there's also people who, um, on the registry, yeah, like I said, who've done really bad things, who've done what we imagine they've done, and what do we do with them? I mean, we most people who do really bad things um, get really long sentences, and we don't have a problem with sentencing in this country, and we don't have a problem with punishment, and we punish people really harshly. We don't need more punishment. And for whatever reason, we see the data that there are low recidivism rates. So even people who do really bad things sexually, it's not a different class of crime. Um, it's not a crime that is um, predatory, inevitable, um, animal-like. It's just like any other crime. People age out of crimes. I mean, we know the criminal justice literature has shown us for decades and decades and decades that people stop committing crimes as they get older. The same thing with people who commit sexual offenses. People age out, people stop committing offenses. And so to have things like lifetime registration, it just flies in the face of all research and evidence. Yeah. It seems like... Um very similar to the conversation around uh, capital punishment abolition and the same right. discourse around like the, the the people who are on death row like actually humanizing them and talking about their experiences we could we could take a lot of those skills which folks in law school learn etc and we could apply it to um, people charged with sex or convicted of sex offenses. Yeah, well, it'd be great if you and the others at Harvard Law School and law schools throughout the country 
really start examining this issue. Um, I think there's amazing professors like Rebecca Richmond Cohen here at Harvard who have tried to uh, educate students about these laws and the horror of these laws. There's a great documentary, Untouchable, by David Feige, and I believe you're going to have a screening of that later in the year here Mm -hmm. at Harvard, and everybody should see that and then have a conversation about that. And I want to just give one more example. I think with the Kavanaugh hearings, one of the things I heard with my students is they said, well... And and I also heard this in the mainstream media. Let's say he did that. Let's say he's 100% guilty. So what? He was young. He was drunk. There was a professor at Brooklyn College who said, what boy didn't do this? You're not a real man if you didn't do that. And I thought it was really interesting how they were willing to forgive him. Yet when I give examples of people on the registry who got drunk and jumped on a woman and now they're on the registry for life and they're coded as having a violent rape conviction, right? No sympathy, no understanding. And I think that's something that I want to write about, this bifurcation that, you know what, maybe he did do it. So what? He was young. He deserves a second chance. He he led a stellar life since then. And everybody on the registry, I think, is very much like that. Um, It's the day that Kavanaugh... It was a Friday, so it wasn't the day that he was ultimately confirmed, but it was when you started to realize that he was going to be confirmed... Uh, I was in training for my public defender class, and our last day of training, a guy came in who um, is registered as a level three sex offender and talked about what he was um, convicted of doing in the most... He talked about his own trauma. He talked about the violence that he perpetrated in like the most restorative way. I've done a lot of survivor work. It was exactly what you would want someone... like The emotional intelligence they would have about what they'd done... And it was the most like powerful experience I've 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 had talking to anyone about sexual violence ever, and it was so amazing to contrast that this man who like it's impossible for him to find a job, it's impossible for him to find somewhere to live. He's a complete pariah, and he was doing he was such a like a paragon of emotional intelligence and redemption, and contrast that to Brett Kavanaugh who was being held up as this you know, exemplary person who failed to do any of those things. So right, right. It just, just goes to show. Um, I, I do, can I just ask you, because we're running up on time, so why not, why abolish sex offender registries as opposed to just uh, narrow them down for the, quote, worst of the worst? Well, um, until 1996, we had no registries for people convicted of sex offenses. We don't need them. We know that sex offense rates were declining prior to the implementation of registries. Registries have no effect on sex offense rates. We have a whole host of collateral consequences for people who are convicted of any felony. Those who have sex offense convictions, there's so many laws in place if they reoffend. We don't need registries because even for those who one might say they did something so terrible, their picture needs to be on the internet and in our community, and we don't want them living here. The best way for them not to reoffend is to give them housing, employment, and stability. And if they serve their time arbitrarily saying, well, that type of offense is so bad that they need to be on a registry, all it's going to do is create the desire for other types of offenses to uh, have these kinds of public shaming and banishment. It's a naming and shaming scheme that has no value. There is no evidence that it works. And 
even if people do really terrible things, I think we have a really strong system in place to punish them already and to punish them further if they reoffend. So it's completely worthless. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. Please feel free to contact us at fourdearpodcast at gmail.com with any suggestions, thoughts, etc. Thank you to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music, and thank you to Brooke Hopkins and Anna White at the Criminal Justice Policy Program for their continued support.